Again, I think it's important that we see this narrative as a whole because I think Luke is trying to communicate something throughout the chapter, and I want us to see that together. So Acts 27, 1-44, you can look along in your own Bibles, or you can follow the words that should be on the screen here shortly, or you can just listen as I read. But Acts 27, the Word of God says this, beginning in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustine cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we'd sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat in the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And we said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. 
We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with the beach, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck, or stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. You did it. You can be seated. It's the word of God. We made it through our four minutes and 12 seconds. Now I should just go ahead and tell you up front that Acts 27 is a Bible historian's dream. If you are a Bible nerd who loves historical details about the Bible and learning about history and geography and weather, and I will happily call myself a Bible nerd, then Acts 27 is your chapter. Luke, who is the author of Acts, is known to be a meticulous historian, but in Acts 27, he takes his meticulousness to another level. Some Bible scholars have called Acts 27 the most historically detailed account in all of the New Testament. Not to say that as a self-professed Bible nerd, it was an absolute joy for me this week to dive into the details of this passage. There's something about diving into the history of the Bible and seeing its truthfulness that gives you confidence in the accuracy of the Bible as a whole. So believe me when I say this, there's a huge part of me this morning that wants to spend five minutes just walking through this map and talking about wind patterns off the coast of Cyprus or Crete. Or five more minutes talking about the Sirtis, which was the graveyard of ships of North Africa. Or another five minutes talking about the accuracy of Luke's details as they get close to the island of Malta. But here's the thing. If I did that, I feel pretty confident this would be a three-hour sermon. And I don't think anyone wants that this morning. Now, having said that, I'll say this. If ever there was a time that I was tempted to give a three-hour sermon, it's today. Not only is there an incredible amount of stuff happening in Acts 27 that's just fun to talk about, but I also haven't preached for three months. I've been in the bullpen for a while, folks. My arm is rested and ready to go. But be that as it may, even I don't want a three-hour sermon. I feel confident my voice couldn't handle it. Most importantly, though, I'd say this. I think if we spend too much time talking about the details, which is a real, a real temptation in Acts 27, we could dive into the wind patterns off the coast of Crete or Cyprus, or we could talk about this or that. I think it would be easy for us to lose sight of the big picture of what's happening here in Acts 27. Luke goes into amazing historical detail in this passage, not because I think he wants us to be debating things like wind patterns or ship construction in the ancient world, but rather I think he does so, number one, because he was an eyewitness and he was there, and he wants us to know, I saw these things, but number two, I think he wants us to understand the difficulty of the journey, which is why I wanted us to read Acts 27 as a whole. And I wanted you to see the difficulty as we progress through the chapter. Because that difficulty, I think, is a huge part of how Paul, or excuse me, Luke is helping us to see the difficulty of Paul's journey. And so it's that big picture that Luke is drawing our attention to that I want us to spend our time talking about this morning rather than all the small historical details. In particular, there are two things I want to do this morning. One, I want us to think about the overarching theme of the passage. And then two, 
I want to think about an underlying theological lesson that comes from the passage. So let's start with the overarching theme of the passage, which I think is this. God providentially directs and guides and protects his people. Let me say that again. God providentially directs and guides and protects his people. Now we could say it this way. In his sovereignty, God directs and guides and protects his people, and that would be equally true. But by saying he providentially directs and guides and protects his people, I'm not only saying that he is sovereign, but I'm saying that he has a sovereign plan that he's working in his kindness. He's providing. He's providentially taking care of his people. Make no mistake about it. The sovereignty of God and his provision for his people is the overwhelming theme of this passage. And that theme comes to the forefront most visibly in verses 21 to 26. Now, for the sake of just getting us caught up to speed, let me kind of walk us into the background here that leads up to verses 21 to 26. I'm just going to quickly cover the first 20 verses here. Now, the big picture is that Paul is imprisoned. In other words, he's a prisoner, and he's on his way to Rome via ship to stand trial before Caesar. In verses 1 to 8, Luke catalogs some of the difficulties faced in their early journey to Rome. Long story short, they had some setbacks. And so by the time they get to verse 9, the ship, which at this point is the second ship, they actually switch ships in verse 6, the ship that they're on is dangerously behind schedule. We're told in verse 9 that the time of the fast has already passed. This is a reference to the Day of Atonement, which was a huge day on the Jewish calendar. And practically, given when the Day of Atonement happens, that means that we're talking it's at least mid-September, if not mid-October. In fact, given the year that we think this happens, probably AD 59, most likely we're talking it's mid-October before they reach Fair Havens. Now, if you're interested, you can see where Fair Havens is on the map. It's in Crete there. They're in Fair Havens. They're trying to get to Rome, and it's mid-October. This is a problem because in the Mediterranean Sea during this time period, sea travel was generally avoided after mid-September. And after November 11th, it came to a halt as a whole until winter was over. And so the fact that they're on Fair Havens in mid-October is a problem here. And this is why Paul encourages the leaders in verses 9 and 10, hey, let's reconsider our plan of pressing any further. This is dangerous. There's really no way we're going to be able to make it. Now, to be clear, in verses 9 to 10, Paul does not yet have a revelation from the Lord. In fact, that explains why there's a bit of a discrepancy between what he says in verses 9 and 10 as compared to what he'll say later. In verses 9 to 10, he's simply speaking out of wisdom. And he had plenty of wisdom to offer. Some Bible scholars would estimate that by the time we get to verse 9, Paul, over the course of his lifetime, has traveled at least 3,500 miles by sea. So he knows what he's talking about. But the crew didn't listen to him. Instead, they decided to press on towards Phoenix, which was just 50 miles up the coast from Fair Havens. And it doesn't go well. In verses 13 to 20, a violent storm falls on the ship to the point that by the time we get to verse 20, everyone has given up hope of being saved. And that is the context leading up to verses 21 to 26. So let's pick up the story here in verse 21. Verse 21 says this, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now it's hard to know here, is Paul just being, I told you so, guy, in verse 21? You probably know I told you so, guy. I told you that wasn't going to work. I knew it wasn't going to happen. Is that what Paul's doing, or is he simply trying to establish some credibility? Is he saying, listen, I knew what I was talking about before, but maybe now you'll listen to me. I tend to lead towards the latter here, that he's trying to establish some credibility. 
But I wouldn't blame him if he was being, I told you so guy. Sometimes as a parent, I might have told you so guy. I told you that wouldn't work. Right? Maybe that's what Paul's doing. But I think more likely he's establishing credibility. Either way, though, in the rest of the, the, the verses that we see are in verses 22 to 26, he goes on to encourage the people with a message directly from God. We see this in verses 22 to 26. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul's message here to those aboard the ship is fairly straightforward. He says to them, God has promised me, me being Paul, that I will stand trial before Caesar, and that is what's going to happen. I'm going to make it to Rome. And because he's gracious, he's going to spare all of your lives also. But this ship is going to run aground somewhere. Now, to understand the boldness of that statement, in particular the idea that everyone is going to be saved, you need to understand something of the difficulty of what they are facing on the ship. You need to understand how bad things are. In verse 14, we're told that the ship was hit by a northeaster, which is a typhoon-like wind that occurs in the Mediterranean during winter months. The storm is so bad, and in verse 18, the crew starts throwing cargo overboard. Whenever a crew starts throwing cargo overboard, you know that's a sign of desperation. Because one of two things is happening. Either A, they're throwing over something that would help them make their living, the cargo that they're transporting, or B, they're throwing overboard things that they'll later need. So if you're throwing cargo overboard, you're desperate. In verse 19, they start throwing part of the ship's tackle overboard. We're not entirely for sure what that means, other than to say they're throwing vital parts of the ship overboard to try to make it. On top of that, we're also told that for a period of days, the sun and the stars just disappeared because of the clouds and the storm. And in the pre-GPS era, the sun and the stars were kind of important for navigation. So to be clear, they're in the midst of a violent storm, they're throwing stuff overboard, and they have zero clue where they are. Things are not going well. In fact, in verse 20, Luke tells us that they reached a point where everyone aboard the ship abandoned hope that they would be saved. Listen, I don't know if you've ever been in a place before where you felt like you literally had no hope. But if you have, you know that's a dark place to be. And it's in that dark place that Paul stands up and proclaims that God is going to rescue everyone. That is a really bold claim. It's one thing for me to be driving with my kids and Tanya to my parents' house. And in the midst of a driving rainstorm, say, hey, everyone relax, we're still going to make it to grandma's. It's another thing for me to be on a plane where the nose is pointed straight down and there's fire outside every window and say the same. We're going to be fine. And let us be clear here. The situation on board this ship is much more like the latter situation than it is like the first. To be on board this ship would be the equivalent of being on a plane that you know is going down because you see the fire everywhere and you're just texting your loved ones as you die, I love you, this is it. For Paul and his shipmates to be rescued from this dilemma, it would take an act of God. And Luke wants us to see something very clearly in Acts 27. It was an act of God that spared Paul and all aboard the ship. 
In fact, Paul's language is very clear to make this known. Verse 23, an angel of God stood before me and gave me this message. Verse 24, God has granted you all of your lives. Verse 25, take heart, men. I have faith in God. It will be exactly as I've been told. Hear this. Much of Acts 27 is filled with historical details about ships and geography and storms. But in verses 21 to 26, Luke wants us to peel back the curtain and he wants us to understand something. God is the one orchestrating the ships and the storms and the geography. And he's doing so because he promised Paul back in Acts 23 that Paul would stand trial before Caesar. And that is exactly what is going to happen no matter the difficulty that Paul and the rest on board the ship have to go through to get there. And in that, we are again reminded God providentially directs and guides and protects his people. Now, that does not mean that God spares his people from all difficulty. As even this passage reminds us, Paul and the rest on board the ship had to go through a really difficult time to get there. But hear this, God always gets his people where they need to be. It might be tempting for you to read the last line in chapter 27, where it says, and so it was that all were brought safely to the land. And think, well, that's nice. They went through a tough time, but they made it. And just chalk it up to random circumstance. But Luke will not let us read this narrative that way. Given what we read in verses 21 to 26, Luke is making it abundantly clear. God is the one who does this. He rescued Paul just like he said he would. He brought the rest to safety just like he said he would. And Paul is going to Rome just like God said he would. God providentially directs and guides and protects his people. And most importantly, he brings them safely to his kingdom. And because that's true, we can trust God and we do not have to be afraid. And I think that's the clear application from the main theme of this passage. If God is providentially directing and guiding and protecting his people, then we can trust God and we do not have to be afraid. And Paul demonstrates this attitude for us beautifully in this passage. There is a marked difference between Paul and everyone else on this ship. Verse 20, everyone on the ship abandons hope of being saved. Verses 21 to 26, Paul encourages everyone, take heart. God is going to take care of us. Verse 30, sailors are frantically trying to make their way to shore. Verse 31, Paul calmly reasserts order. He says, no, don't do that. And he protects everyone aboard the ship. Verse 33, everyone aboard the ship has apparently stopped eating for a period of a couple of weeks. Verses 34 and 35, Paul encouraged them, eat. He even stops to give thanks to God before all of them. The result in verse 36 is they ate and were encouraged. Do you see the difference that theology makes for Paul in this passage? He trusted God, and because of that, while everyone else is losing their minds, he is calm and under control. Now, to be sure, he had a specific message from an angel. But more than that, he had a promise from God, and he trusted God's character. And because of that, he trusted God, and he was not afraid, even when everyone else around him was desperate. And they were panicking, and they were losing their mind. And so in light of that, my question for you this morning is simply this. Do we demonstrate the same level of trust in God ourselves? Or are we afraid of what the future might hold? Let's just be real here for a second. There's a lot to be afraid of in the world, isn't there? Even in our family over the last several years, and even this week, we've had some things that have happened that make me wonder, 
what will the future days and weeks and months and years look like? And if I'm honest, it's a little scary. But listen, if God is providentially directing and guiding and protecting his people, and I know he is, by the way, and I know he is primarily because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and three days later he rose from the dead. And I know that because Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death, that because we've trusted in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, then you have the hope of future salvation that is guaranteed. He will bring us safely to the kingdom. And if that's true, and I believe with all my heart it is, then I don't need to be afraid and neither do you. Listen, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what troubles you're facing. But I'm guessing there's at least something right now that is making you fearful. Maybe you're fearful because every, new, every week you read the news and you wonder what direction is our country headed in. Or maybe you're fearful because your kid went off to school this week and you don't know where their heart is. And you're worried about the influences they might face. And you're wondering, where is this going to go? Or maybe you were the kid who was dropped off at school this week and you're wondering, how will I make friends? Or how am I going to survive this class? Or what am I supposed to do next year? Or maybe you're fearful because you dropped a kid off at college this week. Maybe for their first year or second year or third year. And if you're honest, you're not sure how it's going to go. That's a little scary. Maybe you're fearful right now because things are tight economically. And your job situation just doesn't seem that encouraging right now. Or maybe you're fearful because you're in a relational conflict. And it seems that there's no end in sight and you're not sure, how is this going to affect my life? Or maybe you're fearful because we haven't got much rain this summer. And you're wondering, what will the crop look like when harvest time comes? Or maybe you're fearful because you look at the state of the world and you wonder, what's it going to be like for our kids in 20 years? Or maybe you're fearful because you can't get through to your kids. It seems like they're wandering down the wrong direction and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Or maybe you're fearful because your adult children are making terrible choices. Or maybe you're fearful because your parents are aging and the road ahead seems daunting. Or maybe you're fearful because you got a diagnosis from the doctor recently and you don't know what the future is going to hold. Or maybe you're just afraid I'm going to keep going on and on with this list and I'm going to reach that promised three-hour sermon after all. Maybe that's what you're afraid of. Listen, I don't know what it is you're afraid of. The point is it's probably something. In the light of Acts 27, I simply want to encourage you this morning. You don't have to be afraid. God providentially directs and guides and protects his people. It's going to be okay. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Paul's journey on this ship was no joke. It also doesn't mean that there will always be a fairy tale ending. There's a bit of a fairy tale ending here at the, Acts, at the end of Acts 27, but let's keep in mind Paul was eventually beheaded because of his Christian faith, which is not exactly a fairy tale ending. So listen, I'm not telling you life's going to be easy. I'm not telling you there will be a rainbow at the end of every road. But what I am saying is this. God providentially directs and guides and protects his people. He gets them where they need to be. He brings them to his kingdom. He keeps his promises, every one of them. And again, we know this to be true primarily because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And he rose three days later. And in doing so, he demonstrated he is who he said he is. And he does what he says he's going to do. He can be trusted. And because of that, we don't have to be afraid, even though there's a lot to be afraid of. So that's the main overarching theme of the passage and the subsequent application. That God providentially directs and guides and protects his people. 
And because that's true, we can trust God and we don't have to be afraid. But as I mentioned, I think there's also a key underlying theological lesson that we can learn from this passage too. That's the second part of the passage I want us to consider here. The key underlying theological lesson is this, that God ordains the means as well as the ends. Now, I want you to track with me here. I know it's been a long week for some of you. Some of you had to reacclimate your brains to studying physics and calculus again. Others have had to reacclimate your brains to your kids coming home tired and hungry from school. Others are reacclimating your brain to fall sports season. You're staying up too late studying Husker football or maybe re-watching the last play in the Fremont game from Friday. The point is, a lot of you are feeling tired this morning. And so when I say something like, God ordains the means as well as the ends, you hear what I'm saying. I'm probably sounding a lot like Charlie Brown's teacher to you. Wah, 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 wah. But stay with me here, all right? I want you to stay with me because I think something really important happens. All right, so I'm going to explain what I mean when I say God ordains the means as well as the ends because I think this passage helps us to see that truth very clearly. All right, so I want you to look again at verses 22 to 26, and then we're going to compare that to something that happens in verses 29 to 32. All right, so listen carefully to what Paul says here. I think this is important. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now listen carefully, verse 24, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. All right, keep that in mind. God has granted you all those who sail with you. Verse 25, so take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul is really clear here. God is going to rescue everyone. It's kind of the end of the story, right? Not so fast. Look at what happens in verses 29 to 32. Verse 29. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for a day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and lowered the ship's boat in the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, listen carefully here, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and they let it go. So here's my question. If Paul was confident that God was going to rescue everyone, then why did he feel the need to warn these sailors, if you do this, you're not going to survive? I would argue it's because Paul understands that God ordains the means as well as the ends. The end in this case is all will be saved. But the means of how that happens is Paul's warning. If the sailors tried to escape in the small lifeboat, they likely would have been dashed against the rocks. Furthermore, without those sailors on board, the idea of the ship getting to Malta would have been impossible. Paul knew his warning was necessary to fulfill God's promise. He didn't think to himself, well, God promised everyone would make it. I have no idea that's going to happen. I'm just going to sit back and watch, eat some popcorn. That's not what he did. No, instead, he wisely recognized God uses ordinary means to accomplish his ends. The warning here was the means that God used to fulfill his end, all being rescued. Now, admittedly, we're swimming in the deep end here. There's there's a bit of a murky water, isn't there? A mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But here's why I think it's worth wading into that mystery. Sometimes those who believe in the sovereignty of God, like me, hopefully like you, we can use God's sovereignty as an excuse not to take action. For example, we can say things like, well, God is sovereign over who's going to be saved, so it doesn't really matter if I share with my neighbor or not. If God wants to rescue them, they will. Now, there's an element of truth to that, but there's also some really faulty thinking behind that. Think about it this way. I came to know Christ 23 years ago now. 
when Mark Walter shared the good news about Christ with me in the student union at the University of Northern Iowa. He sat down and he explained to me that I was a sinner, that God was holy. My only hope was that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. And if I trusted in him, I could be rescued from my sin. He would take my sin and give me his righteousness and I could experience eternal life. Now, what if Mark had said to himself, ah, God is sovereign. If he's going to rescue Ryan, he'll do it. I'm not going to share it with him. What would have happened to me if Mark would have had that attitude? Actually, I think that's an impossible question to answer. Because I think God knew that Mark was going to share that. But let me just say this. I'm really glad that Mark Walter believed that God ordained the means as well as the ends. And so he opened his mouth and he shared. And I bet the guys on board the ship in Acts 27 were also glad that Paul believed that God ordained the means as well as the ends. Now listen, maybe you hear me talking about this and you're thinking, does this really matter? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, this guy had way too much time on his hands over sabbatical. He needs to get back to the real world. And listen, maybe you're right, maybe you're right, but I don't think so. Because this passage has always been instrumental for me, long before sabbatical, by the way, in helping me to understand the relationship between God ordaining the means as well as the ends. Paul didn't just recite God's promise and say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. But he understood he had a role to play in fulfilling that promise. He understood that he was still to take action. And I would argue that we should have the same mentality. And that brings us to the second application from this passage. If God ordains the means as well as the ends, we should be people who listen to God's leading and then we take action. All right, so think back with me for just a second to our list of fears that I, I listed out earlier. And I want to use just one of them as an example. I said, maybe you're fearful because your kid went off to school this week and you don't know where their heart is and you're worried about the influences they might face and you're just concerned. Now my question is, how should we respond to that? Well, part of the response is what we talked about earlier. We should trust God. We don't need to be afraid. But I think there's more to that response, isn't there? We don't just believe in a sovereign God, although we do. But we also believe in a sovereign God who ordains the means as well as the ends. Which means practically, yes, we trust God and we're not afraid because we know God will eventually get us and our kids where they need to be, especially if we're his followers. But while that's true, we also take action, right? We pray for our kids. We have conversations with them about heart issues. We get involved in the school. If necessary, we make needed changes to their schooling if the year unfolds and it's going a wrong way, right? We take action. We trust in God's plan, we rest in his character, but we also recognize that God uses means. And so as parents, we get involved, right? We take action. We don't just sit on the sideline and say, well, God's sovereign, what are we going to do? No, we rightly recognize God is sovereign, but we jump in. Now, we don't do so thinking we're in control. We don't do so thinking, well, this is happening outside of God's sovereignty, that's God's role, this is my role. We don't do that. We recognize everything's under God's sovereignty. He's the one who ultimately changes everything, but we are going to jump in and take action because we know that God uses people to accomplish his purposes, just like he used Paul in this passage to accomplish his purposes. God ordains the means as well as the ends. So if God is prompting you to get more involved in your school, do it. If he's prompting you to share the gospel with your neighbor, do it. If he's prompting you to share with that family in need, do it. Jump in, take action, 
God ordains the means as well as the ends. So we should not sit back, but instead we should jump in and be responsive to God's leading in our life. I think that's one of the lessons of this passage. And it's because of lessons like that one that I would contend the shipwreck in Acts 27 is indeed the most important shipwreck in all of history. Sure, you can learn about icebergs and human hubris from the Titanic. And you can learn about submarines and foreign politics from the Lusitania. But in Acts 27, we learn that God providentially directs and guides and protects his people. And because of that, we can trust God. We don't have to be afraid. We also learn that God ordains the means as well as the ends. And because of that, we don't sit by idly, but instead we take action and we follow God's leading. Now, I would argue in the end, those are some really important lessons. More important lessons than avoiding icebergs or staying away from German submarines. So let's take Acts 27 to heart and let's live in light of it. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the joy of your word. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together as a church. What a blessing it is to come together and hear your word. And this morning we pray that we would live in light of it. God, that we would recognize you are sovereign, you direct you provide, you direct, you guide your people, you protect them. Because of that, we don't have to be afraid. We can trust you. But at the same time, we recognize that you use means as well as ends. And so if you're calling us to do something, we pray that we would be obedient to do it. Maybe for some this morning, there's just your spirits tugging on their hearts saying that they need to share the gospel with someone. Or maybe they need to confess sin to someone. Or maybe they need to ask for forgiveness from someone. Or, or maybe there's something else going on that your spirit is working in a way that I'm not even discerning right now. So I just pray, God, that you would do a work, that you would help us to trust you, but also to take action, to rest fully in your sovereignty and yet recognize that you use people. Oh, God, help us to live in light of what we read here in Acts 27. Help us to live for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand for our benediction now. going to read from the book of Jude this morning. Last two verses. Say this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great week.